You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms. We all know that the human body comes in all different shapes and sizes. However, most firearms do not. That is why Savage Arms has rolled out their AccuFit system on the 110 platform. AccuFit uses interchangeable components that allow hunters to custom fit both comb height and the length of pull without taking their rifle to a gunsmith. In fact, the only tool you need is a Phillips head screwdriver. If you want to find out more information about the AccuFit customization system, visit savagearms.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to Land and Legacy Podcast. Uh, we're going to wrap up our prescribed fire series this week, uh, but we're going we're gonna to send it over to Kyle and Frank to bring it on home uh, with their vast experience and knowledge on and use of prescribed fire on many different landscapes. Um, you know, they're a lot older than Matt and I, so they got years of experience, right, guys? Hey. That's right. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> we didn't agree to this before we got on the phone. I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult, but I'll take yeah. it, I guess. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. So you guys have been using prescribed fire for a long, long time, and uh, like way back, right? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I can't help yeah. myself. <laughs> Yeah, Kyle was 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 setting fire with with a stone and a flint back in the day. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. Um, but no, I think it's it's gonna be awesome to sit back, and I'm just gonna hand the podcast right over to these guys. Um, everyone listening, we appreciate you joining in another series with us. Uh, I'm really starting to enjoy these series because there's not as much. Well, there's never been a whole lot of podcast prep. It's always been yeah. Let's shoot her from the hip and see what happens. And uh, with these series, we can kind of spend a whole month in this mode thinking about it to add more to it. So um, uh, I, I'm excited to hear you guys, what you have to say. I know you're going to kind of cover a lot of stuff that Matt and I haven't talked about yet. So it's going to be fun for me to just sit back and listen. And uh, so on that note, Kyle, Frank, thanks for joining us. And uh, I don't know, who, who's going to take the reins here? Well, I'll start out here and we'll, we'll see where this ends up. But so yeah, listeners hang with us here. This is going to be, like he says, loose and shoot from the hip. We got no notes, but we got lots of years of of using fire and lots of thoughts rattling around in our heads. So, um, and this is timely, of course, that's why they started the series, you know, this time of year with spring burning right around the corner. Uh, and and for Frank and I on, on the public land side, I mean, we use fire um, almost year-round, except during the dead of summer. Uh, we just can't get stuff to burn in South Missouri. But otherwise, it's we have so much public land, we, we kind of have to use fire uh, any windows we get. So we have different objectives, uh, which some of which is... Um, best achieved by certain times of the year burning certain times of the year um, so it's a long list and frank i know you've used fire all kinds of times as well yeah we um we have a variety of different habitat types or um, species of interest that we're trying to manage for and we can't um we can't manage for those with a static fire regime or, or burning during the same time of year um, all the time. Some some things that we're managing for require fire certain times of year and other things require fire at other times. And so that's why we're we're sort of forced to use fire at different times because we, we have different management goals. And we want to stress that there are there are no um, there are there are, there should be no static or or set fire regime or fire return interval interval. We've we've got to be adaptive. We've got to we've got to try different things. Burning at different times. We've got to be adaptable. And and so we want to talk about that today. Is is talk about 
what what type of fires during which type of seasons are going to get us the best results for the species that, that we're talking about. So we're going to cover some grasslands, we're going to cover woodlands, we'll cover old fields, we'll cover savannas, we'll cover things like that. So we, we really want to get into sort of the nuts and bolts of when we apply fire during this month, what can we expect in return and for what reason are, are we going to do that? So Kyle, I think the best place to start is let's start where we're at now. So right now across most of the country, nobody's lighting any fires because it's negative 17 degrees, right? <laughs> yes. And so all we can do now is think and plan for the fires that we're going to do generally in the month of March, uh, even late February, if we get some snow melt in the month of March, excuse me, through the month of March and then early April, we need to begin to think about those fires. And these plans should have already been made. Fire lines in in theory should have should have already been put in or, or in the best case should have already been put in. Um, burn plans should have already been written. And if they need to be approved from, from a statewide perspective or, or some county um, uh, burn permitting program that that process should have started but in case it hasn't let's let's talk about spring burning let's talk about spring fire and one of the things that that i know that we do living here in the ozarks is a lot of our oak woodland timber gets burned in the springtime this is these are the time when humidities are such when we can get fire in these woods the wind regimes are such that we can get fire the the leaf litter is such that that we can get fire in these spring woodlands and this is a time when a lot of a lot of spring fire is going on in the woodlands so let's talk about that kyle let's talk about some strategies or some reasons why we would burn our oak hickory forest in the midwest or in the southeast in this late february through early april time period yeah so we get rid of that uh, you know the main thing is to expose that ground to some sunlight um obviously and and land and legacy you know, is well represented with overall management, right? And and it's not just fire, of course. It's it's mm-hmm. thin and timber and all those things that goes with it. So, but with or without that, if we if we can expose the soil to some sunlight, so preferably with some thin thinning as well, but then mm-hmm. follow up with fire, and that's going to maximize the amount of sunlight reaching the forest floor. Uh, even in a closed canopy system, we can get some vegetative response with just removing leaf litter and getting some filtered sunlight to the floor. It's not near as long lasting, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of other podcasts mm-hmm. you can listen to about the values of, of thinning timber. But the point being, um, if we can get rid of that, that leaf layer in our, in our woodlands and our timber units, um, that's going to promote herbaceous growth. And that's going to benefit a whole suite of species, all kinds of birds, particularly in our case, we're, we're after brood rearing habitat for turkeys. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to get some of those grasses and some of those forbs to come on in the, in the timber. Um, some of those early spring ephemerals will pop up. Some of those real early plants that a variety of, of wildlife will pick. It'll be some of the first stuff to green up. Um, mm-hmm. If you have a, you know, a, burned unit in timber right next to an unburned unit that's just solid leaf litter the green up period is amazingly different weeks Mm -hmm. different Uh, and that provides a lot of food for for a variety of wildlife deer um, and a lot of birds lots of you know small game all kinds of different stuff that's going to utilize that Um, fawning cover even yeah if we get that herbaceous layer we're, we're setting the stage for around here you know we're late may june fawning cover um lots of documentation of of higher survival rates where there's you know more herbaceous um, ground layer for to hide fawns in so mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons that we need to be burning timber in the spring around here yeah and and a lot of our prescriptions on public land and what we prescribe to landowners if we're going to prescribe a woodland burn is in this time period from late February through, you know, the early part of April, you know, we've, we've got fuel. A lot of times we'll have fuel mitigation issues we've got to deal with. And we've, we've got, you know, this is, these are shady environments where a lot of times lower humidities are what we need to get fire to carry through the, through the woodlands. And these, these springtime, these early spring, late winter time period is where we get a lot of those 
you know, relative humidities that we need. So, and, and a lot of times if, 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 if we're writing prescriptions for burning a timber, this is sort of the time period that we're talking about. These are when we will start to, to talk about reintroducing fire, especially in a woodland that hasn't seen fire in a while. And once we get it to a certain phase that we like it, where there's a lot of herbaceous growth on the ground and, and, the herbaceous cover is thick enough that it will carry maybe a summer or a or a fall fire. Then we may introduce some different burn timings. But but this is the really the, the critical time period where, where, where we will really prescribe a lot of a lot of fire in the timber. And we're doing this generally before most of the turkey um, nesting is going on. I know there's been some there's been some some government agencies that have gotten kind of knocked around a bit for for burning in the springtime uh, for the potential to harm turkey nests. Uh, but generally, they're creating much better turkey habitat by burning this time than than they would if they didn't burn for any, for any few nests that, that may get burned up. They're creating better turkey habitat. But generally, they're burning and we're burning at a time period where most turkeys haven't even started the nesting period yet. So if you're if you're a little concerned about that from a turkey nesting standpoint, and if we've if we've been following the research that's coming out of out of Georgia and other places in the southeast, every hen and every nest is valuable. We have to protect all of our hens and our nests. We're getting this done before the primary nesting season for turkeys. So so we're really and then we're setting the stage for great brood habitat at the same time. That's right. And I've always looked at it, you know, there's, there's always going to be some collateral damage, right? To, yeah. For every action, there's a reaction. So anything that helps one species, it may be detrimental to something else. And even within a species. And you know what? You and I both have burned up a few turkey nests in our career. Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got over 40 years combined experience doing this. So we've burned mm-hmm. literally uh, probably over a hundred thousand acres between the two of us. So yeah, easy. Yeah. Yeah, we've damaged, we, you know, we, we've yeah. killed a turkey nest or two, but I always say long-term, you know, um, short-term loss for a long-term gain. Um, if, if that happens, um, uh, so be it. I can't, I can't mitigate for every possible single nest. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Um, sure. We want to try to time it. We want to try to do the best things. But I can assure you and, and uh, you know, the listeners here that there's not going to be a whole lot of, if you're dealing with, you know, four inch deep leaf litter <laughs> and no herbaceous layer yeah. in your timber, there's not a lot of turkey nests going to be in there in the first place. Right. Yeah. If, if that's what you're up against, I can assure you that is not ideal nesting cover in the first place. So any fire at any time is going to be better than what you have, yeah. you know, at the moment. So yeah. uh, everything that, that we do and, and all these fire timings we're going to talk about, you know, there's going to be times that herps might be, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, less ideal burning times for them in, in some open field situations or timber situations. Yeah. Um, it's just part of the deal. Um, but this is all, you know, Lane Legacy represents a natural community and community management. Um, what we prescribe is historical disturbances and historical right. type land management. And this is how Mother Nature managed the land for thousands of years. So there was that ebb and flow. There were times that, you know, maybe some turkey nests did take it in the shorts, but then the broods exploded that, you know, the the later nests that, that did, did make it or some herps took it in the short. That's just, it's part of the ebb and flow of nature. Yeah. So. We we don't want to abandon any practice for one detrimental thing, you know, that we see. Don't don't freak out someday when you're burning and you see one turkey nest. It's not the end of the world. Right. Right. So let's on that note, let's let's talk a little bit about what folks can expect from a spring prescribed fire. So let's say we've got a we've got a timber unit that we haven't. Uh, introduce fire into for a while, or we've done an, an initial thinning, and there's there's of course the overstory trees, then there's some there's some, maybe some midstory layer, then some shrub layer, and I know I, I think we get jaded from seeing media reports of, of fires that are certainly out of control when they sweep through a landscape. It looks like everything has been denuded. It's just it's it's just tragic, and and that's certainly not the fire we're talking about. And I know that that. The Madden Adam and, and and you and I, when we've talked about it, 
prescribed for on these podcasts. The, I think the listeners know that's not we're talking about controlled fire and under under tightly controlled prescribed circumstances. But the point I'm trying to make is is if we try to burn a timber unit like that, what can we expect from that kind of fire? Are we going to harm overstory trees? What kind of mortality do we see on overstory trees? What how much mortality will we get on midstory or or the shrub layer? What from from your experience, I know, you know, from from what I've seen, um, what kind of effect? And again, think think about average burn conditions, average RHs or relative humidities, average temperatures. You know, what what kind of what can yeah. folks expect from from a, a spring fire in the woodland situations? Let's talk through that just for a minute to make sure we're on the same page with everybody here. So let's talk <laughs> through specifically the humidities. Of course, the wind. The wind is easy to identify, right? Mm-hmm. And Matt, right. And if if hopefully folks have listened to this whole series. Matt and Adam did a good job a couple of weeks ago talking about, you know, um, typical winds that you want uh, for for fire, whether you're in the timber out in the open. Obviously, it's usually windy you're out in the in the open grasslands than mm-hmm. the timber burns. But humidity is one that a lot of people don't understand. Um, and this is what gets a lot of people in trouble. So let's let's touch on that a second before we start talking about these fire effects. Um, mm-hmm. When we're burning, Frank and I, when we're burning at work, um, lots of times we want 30, 35% humidity, um, maybe even 25%. But we have full-blown crews, um, very experienced staff, um, a robust set of water units, like we're geared up. Uh, I rarely recommend the landowner ever strike a match at 25% humidity. Right, yeah. Uh, that you're going to have significantly increased flame heights, fire intensity, uh, the BTUs, which is the you know the amount of heat that's being put out by that fire or put off by that fire. Um, so lots of times for for landowners, um, we want to be you know a humidity of over sixty percent. It's hard to get anything to burn typically. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in that forty to forty. 50% range, boy, it's really a manageable fire. So yeah, a lot yeah. of that depends on the conditions that we're starting with. But so let's just say we're we're going to burn this timber unit. Now, if we're talking about, you know, the majority of it is is uh, mature trees. Yeah, there's some understory trees. Um, you know, we can we can just let a fire back all the way through a unit. Um, mm-hmm. If we had lower lower humidities and we were worried about tree mortality. We didn't want to kill any trees. Um, we were trying to be careful not to cap face maybe some future merchantable trees. Um, you know, that's when we can let a fire just back through um, an entire unit. It takes a really long time. Um, you got you to factor all that in. But we'll have lower flame lengths. And what I find is those lower flame lengths, even though the heat retention time is longer at the ground level, it has a has a very minimal to nil effect on on any mature trees. Mm-hmm. What it does, though, if we're trying to kill some some little saplings that we don't want coming on for some reason, um, I find that the backing fire that that slower, um, shorter flame length, but slower, longer, I guess, slower moving fire, longer time to pass by a little sprout when i say a sprout i'm talking about the size of your thumb mm-hmm. or smaller you know with the base mm-hmm. um we'll actually get a higher kill with that than a head fire you run mm-hmm. a you run a head fire through a piece of timber you know with lower humidities and you get some of those three foot flame lengths you're gonna you're gonna scar some trees that that maybe you don't want some mature mature trees um, but it blows through so fast that those smaller saplings, yeah, you might top kill them, but they come right back. Whereas um, you'll top kill them by back burning, but some of them will be permanently dead. Some of them won't right. stump sprout. So right. it's all about heat retention and heat timing. Um, we use that sometimes in our favor. We use it um, sometimes I head fire through timber. Sometimes I only backfire through timber. It mm-hmm. depends on the conditions outside, the humidity, and, and what we're after. All of those things are going to remove the leaf litter and get more sunlight to the ground. 
mm-hmm. but it's a matter of what we're doing to the existing woody cover in that unit. And what do we want to do to that? Do we want to remove some of the understory? Um, is it undesirable? Is it a bunch of, and I've seen units where we go in and thin and we get a bunch of red buds or mm-hmm. you get sweet gum or something yeah. undesirable to come back. Then in that case, we want to kill a bunch of the, the understory um, and try to try to change that, create more of a herbaceous layer. That's right. That's right. And, and my, my, uh, my experiences are the same. And, and I know that um, the, the goals that you want to achieve are, are going to drive that. And that's one of the things that is important when you're starting with prescribed fire is to, is to work with somebody that has done it in the past to, to be able to look at the particular unit that, that you want to burn, evaluate the fuels, evaluate what your goals are, what you want to kill, what you, what you don't want to harm as far as merchantable trees and to have a specific burn plan. And our burn plans that we write we have stated goals. We'll have four or five stated goals that we want to accomplish, and we'll have different um, relative humidity parameters, different wind parameters, in which the, under which we can achieve those goals. And if we're outside those parameters, we don't light the fire because the goals, while it may burn, the goals we're trying to achieve won't be achieved under those different under those parameters that exceed that. So, it's important to have an understanding of the unit you're burning and, and to have those goals in mind because you want to be able to make sure your fire is achieving what you want to achieve. So let's um, let's transition then. And another important habitat type that we burn a lot in the spring are grasslands. And and if you've ever been in, in the central uh, Flint Hills of Kansas, uh, through Oklahoma, up through maybe southern Nebraska, Springtime is the time to burn grasslands. That's when they're burning grasslands. Uh, and they're doing that for a specific reason, and that is for forage production for cattle, namely grass. They're trying to grow as much little blue stem as they can for the forage production. Now, that may or may not fit in with your <clears throat> property goals. And so a lot of times we will certainly burn our grasslands in the springtime, but Many other times we won't. So let's talk about burning grasslands in the springtime and in a, in a situation where where I will burn grasslands in the springtime, Kyle, is one, let's say that we've got a grassland or an old field that is is chock full of fescue or has got some invasive species problems that I want to treat. I know I'll go in there, and I don't care. Maybe I'll, maybe the maybe in the end I will thicken up the native grasses that are there. But my my primary goal is to set that particular piece of ground up for a treatment later on. So we'll go in, say, say we've got a 40 acre unit of of native grasses that we've planted, and it's become invaded with fescue. I'll go in, say, the last week of March, first week of April, and we'll burn it. And what that's going to do is, yeah, we'll come back in two weeks later and the fescue will have shot up. And it'll look, man, all I've done is I've I've just increased my fescue problem. Well, what I've done is I've set it up for a much better herbicide application later on where I can really roast that stuff and get ahead of the game. So that's that's one reason why I would burn native grasses in the springtime. Let's talk about some reasons you've burned it in the in the past and, and, and some reasons where you apply prescribed fire in the springtime on grassland habitats oh yeah i mean there's this this laundry list is coming to mind of of different goals for for grasslands and old fields and spring burning so man we can just a week or two difference we can completely change the vegetation response um year to year so you you had a perfect example of fescue well if if you have a say a minor encroachment of fescue i've done this where maybe i only have you know, 10 or 20% uh, fescue or bluegrass, some unwanted cool mm-hmm. season um, and that I'm not going to spray it. Well, then I'll, I'll do just the opposite. I'll wait until it's really coming on strong and, and wait till the warm season is growing as well. If you mm-hmm. burn warm season when it's just started growing and it's got two, three, four inches of growth, but that fescue's already grown for a month. I mean, it's, you know, it's already up there over a foot tall, but it's not, there's enough 
um, you know, of last year's warm season grass to carry the fire because this is only say a 10 or 20% cool season encroachment. And so that's put on a month worth of growth growth, man, you burn it thin and you just crush that cool season for that year. Yeah. And the, and the warm season takes off and explodes. Um, so there's a, you know, without herbicide, a way to control it. Now that's not Absolutely. permanent. You'll see that stuff come back, um, at some point, but man, for that, for that summer, that growing season, you can really do some damage. Yeah. And you've stopped seed production most yep. generally in that situation. So you've bought yourself some time. Yep. And another case where, you know, our research has proven um, that quail readily use, uh, quail broods readily use spring burn units. We always think about, and you're always preached that, well, it makes the warm season grass thick, right? Lots of times in the Midwest, we're fighting too thick of grass. Mm -hmm. You hear us always talking about it's too thick and quail can't move around. Well, but the year of burn it's perfect. Whether we burn yes. it in the spring, whether we burn it in the fall, the quail use it, and we have data to prove that. And there's, you know, um, information out of tall timbers that suggests overwinter survival is reduced if there is uh, very much fall burning, which makes mm-hmm. sense. We've we've left all these areas void of vegetation for the winter time. Quail have to relocate to new areas and spend the winter in a in an area they're not familiar with. So. Um, spring, if you're specifically after quail in certain units, then spring burning really needs to be a part of the game and needs to be small units. We need to think about that. Um, we right. don't want to be burning 200 acre units at a pop, you know. Well, um, you're, if, you're right about that. Yes. If we can, if we can checkerboard that up, uh, it creates more edge, more diversity overall. Um, the more we can have, um, if we were going to burn 200 acres, you know, we would much rather have 25 acre units than five 20 acre units or one, one, uh, hundred acre unit or 200 acre unit, you know, yeah. whatever. I think yeah. my math was completely wrong. There. Yeah. It know, but... good there. <laughs> it's not surprising. <laughs> but anyway, you know, yeah, you're, you're right. And, and I'll jump in with it with a, with a perfect example that just came up today. Uh, we were on a console in, in Mississippi recently where, the gentleman had a 240-acre unit of, of pines that it was, it was an old field situation. It had been replanted in pines, but he was going to completely wipe out the pines and, and manage that for in kind of an open savanna. So not kill every pine, but kind of make it a, you know, a 30 to 20% canopy closure, like a real open savanna. And, and we, he's got a cover or two of birds on this piece. And we actually saw him during the consult. And so we, he was visiting with one of the guys that was going to help him with a prescribed burn. And he called us today or he texted us today and said, hey, the guy that wants to help me prescribe burn said we can do much better if we burn this whole unit. We can kill all the pines. We can kill a lot of the pines with, with one burn instead of you know trying to, to burn half of the unit this year and half next year. And I said, whoa, whoa. So let's back up. I said, you've got one, maybe two cubbies of quail on this 240 acres. You certainly don't want to burn their only refuge that they've got now, because the quail habitat for the rest of the property was pretty marginal. So if we'd burned that whole unit that that is under under consideration, then we've taken away all the refuge cover. So I said, hey, let's I know I know it may be tempting to burn it all, but let's burn half this year and then half next year and go from there. So that just speaks to that breaking it up into units don't burn everything at once because then I mean, you've got to leave some refuge cover because these birds are going to be um or, or whatever you're talking about whether it's quail turkey or whitetail whatever it is these birds are going to be these animals are going to be displaced with a fire and if you can provide them good refuge cover nearby your survival is going to be much much better oh and the list goes on and on so refugia for insects I mean, all these, there's all these insects that some of them are, there's eggs underground that are going to hatch, you know, when, when spring or summer comes, but a bunch of them, they have, you know, egg or they overwinter somehow in different kinds of vegetation within stems of vegetation. Yeah. And, and let's just pretend that, um, you know, you had a 40 acre, say a prairie piece and nothing around it is prairie. It's all introduced cool season grasses. So this is the only prairie piece within 
several miles. Mm-hmm. If we burn that whole thing, there's some there's some insects that are specific to those prairie plants, and if we burn mm-hmm. the entire thing, some of those insects that's it. There yeah. there is nowhere for them to repopulate that. So that's right. We have to consider these these refugia for for repopulation. So we never want to burn whole whole parcels of of the same habitat um you know in one shot and i understand especially if you're if you're dealing with a burn contractor sometimes it's a matter of practicality right um, yep, yep. there's going to be times that you know look i can't do 25 acre burns and I, you know i got to do 520 acre burns or 250 acre burns yep i mean sometimes real life gets in the way and we understand but if there is a way <laughs> To, to break those units out smaller, if it is at all possible, then it, it is always preferred. Um, right. But we certainly have to stay away from burning whole units, especially of one habitat type when the surrounding landscape is not that habitat type. That's right. That's right. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in on public land and on private land both. Uh, we're, we're dealing with increasingly smaller islands of habitat that, um, man, even on the pri- public land that we manage, a lot of times we don't get help from our neighbors, so we we've got to afford we've got to be purposeful in leaving refuge and making sure that that we're not you know providing burning up all the the habitat. Um, yeah, so let's, yeah so, well, let me just say you know someone may be thinking I was talking about refugee for these insects, and, and surely by now if they've listened, they know enough. They know enough that we we love insects, but mm-hmm. you know, like, ah, what do I care? Well, because those insects, there's a bunch of different things that a bunch of um, species we do care about are going to be eating some of those insects. It, uh, it all yeah. plays into the whole food chain, and it's so complicated that we can't even comprehend it all. But it it all has a purpose. That's right. That's right. So uh, I think we've covered spring fires and when we would do that pretty well. Let's talk about that seems to be um, one of those things that that has been touted maybe as as the the silver bullet for all of our wildlife management woes. And I kind of say that tongue in cheek is uh, is is fall burning, late summer fall burning, growing season burning. Now, I'm not trying to say it's it's not good, it's not needed. It's absolutely, but I think we have in in some cases we have we have talked about fire in the fall and, and in the in the growing season is maybe the, the silver bullet to, to getting a lot of this disturbance on the landscape. And it certainly has its place and, and you and I both do it. But in the example of the quail situation, if we burn a lot in the fall and in the summer, we're taking away over winter cover and we may affect survival. So the, the point is, is we don't need to rely on it all, but it's a super critical part of a, of a burn regime, and we do it a lot. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about late summer and fall burning, particularly on killing sprouts. A lot of, a lot of what we want to do is maybe control woody vegetation and some grassland situations or old field situations, and growing season fires can really help us get on our goals or, or, or achieve our goals from that perspective. But um, there's also some compelling research that's coming out of Kansas that's saying that, that there's a way to apply fire in these situations, particularly to control sumac and, and other type of, of, um, of sort of grassland type uh, brush species that, that, that are more effective than others. So one of the ones, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about that. One of the things that we want to do with, with growing season fires is, is controlling, controlling sprouts. But we don't necessarily want to go to a field and just roar, rip a, a roaring head fire through that field and expect that we're going to kill, top kill, or we're probably going to top kill, but but really completely kill much of our sprouts. So Kyle, talk. You've been you went to Kansas State. That's your school. So I'll give you the the <laughs> um, the floor here to to talk about some of the research that's coming out of Kansas State on how to apply that in in summer fires. Yeah, and I think this this summer I jumped on the bandwagon. Well, by summer we're talking, you know, August around here, uh, South right. Missouri, August September. It's hot, it's hundred degrees out, and we're burning yep. stuff. Yeah, and uh, man, we we really jumped on that bandwagon. Oh, late nineties, early two thousands. And I still use it some, you still use it some, but I think we overplayed our hand on it a little bit. Uh, there was mm-hmm. two main things that that we were all sold on. Um, 
for one, it, it was, you know, thick rank grass. Well, it'll, it'll increase Forbes the next year. And it does that, yes. that it, by God, it does that in fact works. Um, yes. with that said though, um, our quail data suggests that quail use of spring burn unit, just the same as a fall burn unit for one summer, they'll utilize yeah. the heck out of it. And by the next summer it's too thick. So, it will have more forbs. I do not disagree with that. Um, yeah. But specifically for quail use, it does not appear to matter in this part of the world whether I burn it in September or March. I will get the same amount of quail use, and we have the data to back that up. So that one's kind of out the window, at least in the quail world. Mm -hmm. um, now I can make other arguments of why we would want that increased forbs um, for, you know, we could be selling seed off a piece of property. Mm -hmm. um, we could be, you know, if it was more deer centric piece of ground, I might want to throw in some August, September burns, um, uh, you know, more forage on those forbs throughout the rest of that next summer. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that we were, you know, uh, told was, well, it'll hammer the sprout. The, there was always this assumption that, you know, woody stuff is stressed. It's, mm -hmm. it's hot and, yes. and, it's even if it's not a dry summer, it's still, it's the end of summer and it's hot. And before they throw all their energy, they've been growing all summer. Now they're going to throw all their energy down into their roots, right? Going into the fall. So the idea yeah. was, man, if you could just slam them before they put all that energy into the roots. Well, it turns out, um, and, and you kind of mentioned, so first of all, firing techniques plays into this. Are we doing mm -hmm. a head fire? Are we doing a backing fire? That's going to change a lot of how, how long the heat retention is on these, on mm -hmm. these sprouts, first of all. Secondly, um, my experience, uh, with the rare exception of a massive drought, um, 05, 06, yes. I killed the crap out of some, some brushy species by burning in yeah. August and September. Yeah. We did Other, the same thing in 2012. Yep. Uh, otherwise, my experience is, yep, I can top 100% top kill. I can run a fire in August, 100% top kill. I can run the yep. same fire in March, 100% top kill. And I get 99% re-sprouts. Um, mm -hmm. The stump sprouts come back. It doesn't really matter. Um, the the K-State research you talked about, though, is, is kind of fascinating. So what they found um, really... Um, redirects what we need to be thinking on grasslands as far as shrubby species control. And some grasslands, you know, get get maybe overcrowded, but we, we like some thickets, but sometimes yeah. the sumac or dogwoods can start taking over. So they were doing all this different burn timing. And what they found out was um, short term, yep, sure enough, this August burn thing kind of works, you know. It, it appears to work that that following growing season, um, there was a, there was less woody coverage. The problem is though, for every one of those sprouts that you burn three or four, you know, shoots come off of it. So yeah. long-term, and I think some of that was looking five, 10 years later, mm -hmm. due to the, the extra sprouting, you ended up with more woody cover in the long run, <laughs> 10 years yeah. later. Than you started with by burning so, them. It was counterintuitive to what we thought we were trying to achieve. So basically, these 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 woody species that typically exist in clumps, dogwood or sumac, were responding to being top killed by putting out more sprouts, and by by they were responding to the fire by putting by, by making more stems. That's what you're saying, essentially. Yes, yes. So long term, we ended up with more woody biomass in the unit yes. than than had we not burned at all. Well, that's not what we want. So, so you know, a couple of the main reasons we were kind of taught or told that what August and September fires were good for, in my opinion, are are somewhat out the window all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. So, so what they found was. And it didn't matter. Head fire, backfire didn't matter. In August and September, short term, yep, lower stem count. Long term, you just screwed yourself. In fact, it was one of the worst times to burn long term for woody control in a in a grassland system. Mm -hmm. What they found was um, fall and winter fire. So they were talking 
October, November, December, um, and it needed to be a backing fire. Mm-hmm. The head fire, again, passed too quickly, would just top kill them, they would, they would re-sprout. But what they found is if you could apply a backing fire in October through December, now this is Consoprairie, Kansas, so, mm-hmm. you know, north-central Kansas kind of, northeast, north-central Kansas. Um, so timing might be a hair different, you know, in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. But a backing fire would keep that heat retention longer. Um, and so a lot of those didn't stump sprout at all. Um, and, and the ones that did wouldn't have as many multiple shoots. Um, so overall, the, the best way to reduce brush in a grassland system was backing fires in October, November, and December. Yeah. So you're, you're saying, Kyle, that, that you're going to control those woody sprouts a lot like you cook a, cook a steak, low and slow, baby. Yeah, I, 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 miss, I misspoke, though, because I said, uh, like a steak. You don't cook a steak low and slow. It's hot, and you whisper fire, right? Or what? what I forget. I don't know if you guys watch Yellowstone, <laughs> but he's like, um, put it on a hot thing, whisper fire, and then bring it out here. Uh, I'm I'm more on the side of medium for my steaks, but low yeah, and slow on the on the smoker for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. basically, what what Kyle you know was alluding at is is so that fire is backing very slowly and it's sitting on that stem for quite a while relative to to fire's timing, sitting on that stem and it's cooking it cooking that stem pretty you know pretty thoroughly getting a lot of heat on it may not be a tall flame and it may not be intense but i know you know a lot of times with with head fires i know kyle you've seen this too sometimes we'll set a head fire on a unit and some of the it'll go so fast over a unit that a lot of times some of the herbaceous material won't be consumed because it'll go so quickly that it'll just some of it may be shaded or something under some you know some Mm. kind of topography situation or maybe shaded by a shrub or something but i'll even go back and there will be duff and herbaceous material that hasn't burned even with the head fire well how in the world did that happen that thing was we had 10 foot flame links well things just went so quickly over and so that's what you're sort of alluding at there Yep, absolutely. So all that plays into it. it. You know, this whole fire behavior thing is, I don't know, it, it can get fairly complicated, convoluted, to be honest with you. Um, uh, there's a lot of information out there. Um, we've subscribed to a couple different um, fire email um, chains that are always putting out some fire research stuff, have some some neat stuff, um, mm-hmm. joint fire science exchange, things like that. But it, yeah, it's really fascinating of all the different things that you just don't think about. And a lot of it, it's just a matter of time and, and being a practitioner of fire, you know, and, and having those personal experiences and you start seeing patterns and start figuring things out. Well, that's right. And, and, and the luxury, I guess, that you and I have in talking on this podcast and talking about this is we've got, like we said, a combined over 40 years of prescribed fire over you know, in the hundreds of thousands of acres, over a hundred thousand acres combined that, that we've done. And you've got, and you're ahead of me on, on the game just because you've, your career is a little bit longer than mine, but we, we have got the luxury of, of, of experiencing a lot of this, of trial and error, seeing what worked, starting out in our careers with one bit of information that says one thing. And then as we are doing science ourselves with the quail project, and as we keep up with the latest science from other places, seeing how that has changed or modified over time. We have the luxury of, of, of kind of being able to keep on top of that and, and have that, that experience. But one of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast is really outline and give some, give some what to expect when you're putting fire in these different landscape types at these different times of the year. We wanted to cover the spring we wanted to cover sort of that that late winter, early spring, sort of late spring stuff, and then into the the late summer and fall. So, Kyle, let's as we wrap this up, let's let's try to outline three or four bullet points here to kind of close this out that people can take home with them. Let's talk about um, what what are some of the high points to expect with uh, with spring burning. 
when would you utilize spring burning? What types of landscapes and for what particular goals would you utilize late winter into spring burning? All right. Well, so almost any kind of habitat, I'm willing to use a spring burn. Um, we already mentioned timber. Um, lots of times that's one of the, you know, maybe midwinter, but if we get any kind of snow, the, the timber never dries out. So typically a timber unit is going to be a spring, but but I use spring burning in, in grasslands, old fields, glades, a uh, variety of conditions. So I, I can't really think of any habitat type that I wouldn't do a spring burn at some point. My goals would be... Um, typically to, to change the herbaceous structure. Um, maybe it's a new grass planting that I'm trying to help out. Um, that would be one point um, uh, to, to kind of actually thicken the grass. Maybe it's uh, where I've got livestock um, as part of my operation, but also wildlife habitat. That would be another reason to favor spring burning in, in a grassland situation, for example. Um, we've already mentioned if you were battling certain invasives, um, cheatgrass or fescue or something, there would be a good reason. Um, again, just within weeks, you got to time it right. Mm -hmm. But that late winter, um, spring type burning um, can can manage all of those types of, of situations. Um, let's, well, I'll just, let me step into fire you, you kind of mentioned you know what so what do we expect um if i am burning in the in the september august uh august or september my I'm, my goal is typically or my habitat type is typically going to be a grassland or a, an old field i'm not going to be burning timber not in our part of the world that time mm -hmm. of year maybe in a pine situation you could but we just don't have that here right um so i already know i'm going to get that forb response um that's because I'm going to damage the root crowns. I'm mm -hmm. going to damage um, these warm season grasses. So I would be I would be burning warm season grasses in the late summer or fall to to damage them, to hurt them, mm -hmm. to release forbs. But I could also do that to prep a unit for fescue spraying. Allow the fescue to explode in the fall or some other cool season grass, and then spray it. So mm -hmm. there's two different timings to achieve that same goal. Cerisa, right. um, common problem across a lot of the United States. Um, a lot of research shows that you know August burning right before the cerisa starts to make seed. Um, yes, that's a way to help control that. So, so there's a variety of reasons that we can use an August and a September burn. Um, we'll step into to fall. Open landscapes again, old fields um, or or grasslands. So you can burn them in the fall. Now we're saying October, November, even December, let's say even winter. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll still get a, a higher forb response than we will with the spring burn because what happens is the freezing and thawing damages the root crowns rather than right. the fire itself, like in August. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have time to put on any growth. And so those root crowns are exposed to freezing and thawing. Uh, the warm season grasses and they're and they're further damaged in the winter. Thus, we get a, a forb explosion in the spring and the following summer. Um, I have done some timber burns and some great timber burns in November and December. Most winters we just end up too wet and we can't get it done. But you right. get after that leaf drop, depending on your goals. Uh, again, uh, I've had some really good consumptive fires that time of year. Um, the oaks around here don't drop their leaves yet, so then we get some leaf drop the following spring uh, that'll kind of blanket the ground a little bit, so you won't get as much of a herbaceous response. So, yeah, it, it, it's just <laughs> every every fire is different, and every day right. that you apply fire is different based on the weather and the firing techniques that we're going to use. Then we can even manipulate the response based on that. So. Yeah, there's there, and, and I hope folks have, have 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 gathered that that you know there are there there are plenty of different times of the year to utilize fire based on what your goals are, and to not be stuck into one particular fire regime or think that I've got to get this fire done during this particular month, or or all of my plans or all of my goals are out the window. There there are there are different ways to approach it, you know, and and one of the one of the things that that 
I know for for new burners is 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 the whole is the whole f- idea of fear. You know, fire can be scary, and that's where this late summer, early fall type burning can really kind of ease someone into it. If you've got a unit that that will really benefit from a fall or or late summer fall or, or early winter fire the the conditions then generally are are easier to manage a fire so relative humidities don't get to that drop out to that scary 25 to 20% in the afternoon winds aren't usually too crazy that the herbaceous vegetation still has some green in it so that you know it, it it takes its time to move across the landscape. Those fires are typically much easier to manage, much easier on a on a new burner to really kind of step in, wet their toe, um, and, and and get used to the idea of putting fire on the landscape. And so that's a that's another real beneficial reason to burn that time of year. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's a lot tougher on the crew. It's typically hot outside mm-hmm. um, that late summer, early fall. But it is, man, that, that fire does move a lot slower, and you got a long time to, to deal with the situation. You know, yeah, yeah, you can. The, you get a spot over in the spring and look out. You may, <laughs> you may, yeah. You better have the local fire department number ready, handy, and and we're not trying to scare people, by by no means. I mean, it's just all part of it. You need to know what you're doing. You need to be safe with it. You said something there, Kyle or or Frank that. Uh, I know as you, Kyle, that talking about those summer burns being a little tougher on the crew. The only time in my life I've ever had heat exhaustion was on a summer burn in, in August. And uh, we were burning, uh, it was a little over 100 acres. Lots of walking um, mm-hmm. and just trying to get it to burn. It wasn't burning. I was walking and walking and walking. It was, heat index was like 106 that day. And uh, I, I, all of a sudden it just hit me. I started throwing up. And I, for three days, I could not get over it. It was like lay in front of a fan with ice packs. It was just like, I don't know how to get better. And finally, I did. Yeah, yeah that's brutal. Well, and, and, that's, and that's to be honest with you, having, having several years of those times fire under, under our belt and then seeing that we could achieve a lot of the same goals by doing the same fire in October – we have we have really kind of moved to that as because it is easier on the crew and you don't face a mutiny of your of your crew when you say hey let's go burn this unit and they're like no I don't think so you know, <laughs> if you if you do say that in October it's 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 a lot easier so um, if you can you know that's that's one of the benefits of this long timing you can still achieve much of the same results in, in an easier time and still face fairly manageable and easy burn conditions in October relative to, to August. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one last thought, you know, keep in mind for, for a lot of landowners, you know, they may have two, three burn units, four or five, maybe to do in a year. Um, a, a lot of folks aren't going to have, you know, 27 burn units to accomplish each spring like we do. And another 20 in the fall and, or, you know, late summer and fall. So, I guess my point is we really have to expand that burn window. If if all of our units called for spring burning, if all of Frank and I's units needed a spring burn, it's not possible. No. We have too many units to do, and there's not enough good burn days. It just It's not possible. So we have had to expand that burn window and try to say, hey, what what can we get? What results can we get this time of year if we burn this unit here or there? And we mix it up, you know. I won't burn unit three on such and such wildlife area, you know, every three years in August. That's, that's not how it works. I mean, I evaluate those units and say, man, this has changed or that's changed. It needs this. And it, it just can't be a, a textbook uh, recipe it just doesn't work that way you're always evaluating and you're always you know thinking well what do i need now what what conditions is it calling for here's a question for you guys as we kind of uh, i've got a few little fun questions before we wrap this up but um what are some of the if if you know if i was shooting you with rapid fire and i said what's the best use of fire what would you say kyle Best use of fire? Yeah, like what's the, you know, there's many, we've covered it for three, four weeks now. There's many different ways to, like if you were kind of 
pigeonholed into a into a setup. Like as a landowner who doesn't have a ton of experience, but he's wanting to use prescribed fire, what would be your like? Okay, that's a pretty good way to use fire. Uh, I mean, I guess uh, generally speaking, it's it's the ultimate historical disturbance, and it's also the cheapest management tool you can possibly use. So, yeah. There's two reasons it must exist on the landscape. It was here. God made it that way. <laughs> yeah. And it's the cheapest possible, quickest, effective tool you can use. Um, I don't know if that's answering your question. But... Well, I, I'm, I'm asking more from a practical standpoint. Like if you were a new, if you were talking to a new landowner and say you're trying to use prescribed fire, what would be his best way to ease into it? And I think you kind of oh, answered it already, but yeah. let's just well, say, here's prescribed fire, here's prescribed fire 101, use it on your land. Yeah, so, you know, my instructions would be, hey, let, let's keep, if you're brand new to this, let's keep it as simple as possible. We're going to start with a, a basic unit. We're not going to have a big unit, and we need to have, you know, ideal fire line. We, we just want to make it successful, and we want to make it as controlled as possible and and fairly easy to manage yeah um, so i'm going to prescribe you know really average conditions um and ideal fire lines down to bare dirt um, disc fire lines and and just guarantee <laughs> success uh, the, <laughs> the worst thing a person can do is jump in with half an understanding uh, and then get spooked and yeah ruined that that would be just you know, that's terrible for a land manager to, to start off on the wrong foot. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Frank, if I were to like yeah. say prescribe fire, um, you know, and in your head, of course, we all have wonderful, probably wonderful memories and, and just kind of thoughts, I guess, uh, of prescribed fire. But like somebody says, says, if I just say successful prescribed fire, your most enjoyable day on a fire line. Uh, describe to me what that looks like. Is that a dormant season, growing season? Is that a grass burn, timber burn? What does it look like? So to me, it looks like um, I love I love a prairie fire, and I love um, I guess an open. You know, I, I I'll take any fire that I can get. I, I love to get it on the landscape. But to me, an ideal day would be a be a grassland situation. A, a, of a fire, you know, late winter, early spring, where where I'm getting fire across the landscape, it's safe, and then I can see that man, I have I have accomplished something. I took this from there was you know thick rank grass, there was thick rank vegetation that nothing can move through. I've taken it down, I've restarted the system, and then I come back in a couple of weeks and I start to see stuff germinating and start to see stuff germinating that wasn't there prior to the fire or at least not showing up because what I've done is I've taken all of that competition away. I've given something that needs a shot that needs a chance to shine. I've given it's I've given it the conditions for it to, to grow. And it's usually something that's really important and it's really sensitive. And that that's a good day is, is, is once you see, you know, I like to see things, um, where I know that I've done something. Um, and, and, and those type of fires, you really know you've done something when you've taken it from three foot tall, big blue stem down to nothing. It's I mean, yeah, I've, I've restarted this system. I've made a difference. See, I think mine, if I were to say, you know, a good day on a fire line, what's that? And I'm like a burn in the timber. And it's that, uh, one thing that I wanted to say that I heard you guys touch on was springtime burning and how some, organizations have got kind of a bad rap because of they were doing burns a little bit into nesting season and people were really upset about it and i think of some of the burns that we've that we've made oh man one of them was in early may which uh you know and in, in, that was in iowa uh assisting a landowner we were in the area and he wanted us and I, i'm not going to turn down a day on a fire line and uh and we burned and yeah there was some there was uh one nest that i remember getting getting burned over but i can remember going back in july and there was quail and pheasants all over that unit and it's like you know we had to take we might have taken a step back but we took three giant leaps forward after that burn um but for me a, a an ideal like just that that oh prescribed fire and fond memories is 
that kind of March, early April burn where no leaves are starting to grow on the trees really, maybe a few understory trees, but like uh, coralberry or buckbrush has got leaves popping, multiflora rose has leaves popping, and we burn, and it just sets everything back in that right about dark walking through kind of mopping up and just seeing the smoke and seeing stuff, seeing those leaves on the multiflora rows all curled up. That, to me, is like, whew, there's no better feeling. Yeah, if you pick some mushrooms while you're at it, it's the, it is the ideal burn day. <laughs> <laughs> to give them away, I don't like those things. You guys looking for mushrooms. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 You guys, uh, those... what have you, some of the, uh, I know you've made some errors in your day. What are some of the worst errors you made using prescribed fire? Well, I know one that I made specifically, it wasn't, I mean, the, the fire timing was great. The fire timing was, was the, you know, the conditions were right where we need them, but we had a, we had a little situation in our fire line where it was actually, it was wet. It was kind of damp and you wouldn't think that would cause problem, but it just kind of, it looked like we had had, it was on the, it was on the, the backing fire section so we 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 went it was about a quarter mile of backing fire and we thought we had it mopped up and we thought it was good and we went and we lit the head fire and we looked back and it it wasn't good there was there was head fire racing outside of the unit and heading across a prairie and so that was the worst day i had i mean when that happens your gut i mean your just gut just tenses up your heart jumps in your throat you're like what am i gonna do now Luckily, it was on a walleye ferry, and we kept it there. But that really, um, we we sort of exceeded our expectations that day in terms of the amount of acres burned. We can kind of joke about it now, but and we kept it on the area. But it really reinforced the idea of, of really mopping up on your on your backing fire so well, and and even in these, you've got to make sure it's completely out, no smoldering, no smoking anything go back and forth several times really and it's really caused me to be a much better fire practitioner because i'm much more cognizant of fire line prep ahead of time and making sure that we have got it all mopped up before we circle around and set the head fire yeah oh man i think of one where it was burning kind of an old crp field and right out of the gate we started burning and i was like I know what the fire forecast is, but this is a little bit more severe. Humidity's relative humidity is probably a little less than what it was forecasted. But it's like, ah, we're here. Let's go ahead and burn it. And then, you know, in the first 50 yards, the the fire was creeping off the line pretty good, backing off of it. And I started seeing some of those little, I don't know what you guys call them, but like little micro dust devils. Mm-hmm. And where I just the the atmosphere is uh, is unstable a little bit is what I base it off of, and I saw that and I was like, I should probably end this right now, but we're already in, and we had a fire line. <laughs> it jumped the fire, yeah, it jumped the line, and and you know, uh, I, I that burn in particular really makes me go okay, like when I start a line, like. And, and there's, there's, it's hard, but okay. Where's the, where's the last part in lighting this that we can step back and say, not today and wipe it out. And, and that's Mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, be cognizant of that and be conscious of, I guess, of, of when you see those little instabilities in the, in the weather go, yeah, nope, sorry, cancel it. Not today. Yeah. Well, and, and always having a backup plan, right? I mean, Frank can attest, I'm the, I'm the king of assuming the worst is going to happen, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah, you should <laughs> like, see our hunt list every time we go on a hunt. <laughs> I got a backup for everything. Yes. Um, I'm, that's just how my family is. Is we Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. But no, and in fire, a lot of that, that's important to think that way. Um, if you haven't lost a fire, you haven't burned enough. Yeah. Period. You can be yeah. the best fire practitioner in the world, I guarantee you they've lost fires yeah that if you burn enough acres you're going to lose fires that's part of it yeah the key is having a plan um this is probably not ideal and i wouldn't suggest people do this but i remember a fire several years ago that in my briefing i said okay when we lose it right here and point it on the map 
because there was a brush pile. <laughs> when we lose it here, we're going to do this, 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 and this. So <laughs> I was home. So, and it, you know, the condition, we were pushing the top end of our conditions and it, it probably shouldn't even have been burning that day, but sure enough, we weren't five minutes into it and we lost it at that spot, but we already had a plan made. We just dropped back. We burned an adjacent unit, expanded burn unit and took care of it. But yeah. typically we do lay out, Hey, if it goes, if we lose it to the North, this is what we're going to do. We're going to drop back to that Creek. We're going to do this. You know, if we lose it to the East, we're going to drop back to that field road and start back burning off of that. You know, you, have you you've got to lay out those backup plans. Have you ever had to apologize to anybody on the fire line for things that were said when the fire got out of hand? No, no. <laughs> I have. I have. Yeah. When a, when an intern comes running up and, and you're like, get up there and get that out of there. Give me that tool. Give me that backpack. Blower. What are you doing? Give me that. Um, yeah. And then it's like, hey, I'm yeah. sorry about how intense it got back there, but in the heat of battle, we just need things to get done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Well, guys, um, thanks for thanks for taking it over this week. Hopefully, man, I, I think there's a lot of people wanting to utilize prescribed fire. I know we've got clients and listeners in states where prescribed fire hasn't been used in the last several year, several years, excuse me, like Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, there's starting to be more buzz, it seems like, with more and more agencies starting to see the research that shows, ah, maybe we were looking at this all wrong. Maybe not all fire is bad. Maybe there's a large part of it that's really good. We just need to figure out how to implement it that way. Yeah, it's an important part of the landscape um, and it's an important part of almost every ecosystem in North America. So in most cases, fire somehow influenced the how those those ecosystems evolved so it yeah. needs to be a part of it where it's possible well awesome. and, and that's right kyle and it's got to be you know there's a lot of of buzz right now going on in the southeast about the turkey decline and the only way we're going to climb out of that is through increased brood habitat increased brood survival and, and nesting survival and fire and thinning are going to have to be a part of that i don't know how we're going to we're going to dig ourselves out without more widespread landscape. It's got to be a part of it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't know how many times we have to sit around in a circle and say, how are we going to save the turkeys when I believe it's yeah, right, right there in front of us. Yeah, that's yeah. certainly a start. That's where we yeah. need to start. All right, guys. Hopefully, uh, man, I'm looking forward to the next series. I think we're going to shift. I don't know. We may end up opening up two series here, but um, turkeys is – is coming up on it's it's on deck so we'll be talking turkey sometime soon appreciate you guys listening once again we'll talk to you next week